1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com You're listening to The Wild Initiative Podcast Network. Learn more and check out all the shows at thewildinitiative.com. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm joined by Lucas Leaf, Executive Director of Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. All right, welcome to episode number 17 of the Fish Untamed Podcast. Today I am joined by Lucas Leaf, who is the Executive Director of Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. Sportsman for the Boundary Waters is an organization that is currently fighting for the protection of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, which is the most visited wilderness area in the U.S. So if you've never been there, that gives you an idea of of how many people truly value this area and, and believe it's worth protecting. And unfortunately, it's currently under threat from a mining company who, if things continue to go forward, would be setting up a mine right on the edge of the Boundary Waters. And although I've never had the privilege to go to the Boundary Waters, uh, I really hope to make it there someday and hope that when I do, uh, it's just as pristine as it is now. And I'm sure a lot of other people listening also feel the same way. So I was really excited to hear how Lucas and his organization are fighting that mine proposal and also how you can help. Um, even if you don't live in Minnesota, you can still take a stand uh, for protecting the Boundary Waters. So without further ado, here is my chat with Lucas Leaf. All right, sweet. Well, I usually just start off with um, asking a bit about your fishing background and how sure. you kind of got connected to uh, the work you're doing now. Sure, yeah. Um, man, so, you know, born and raised Minnesota, boy uh been fishing since i could fall through an ice hole <laughs> and all my dad you know and grandpa were taking me out when i was a little kid and uh, my grandpa had a cabin on big sandy lake which is in central minnesota unfortunately we no longer have that cabin but um you know spent a lot of time of course going up to the boundary waters again my dad took me there the first time when i was 12 uh, it was for a spring uh opener trip for lake trout so not exactly the ideal experience, first experience for a uh, middle schooler, but uh, <laughs> ended up having like a blizzard and, you know, 
seeing firsthand, you know, what, what that's like and, and how real that can get and life-threatening situations like that are, especially when you're deep back in the wilderness like that. And I mean, honestly, I, I fell in love and have been going up at that time almost every year now and um, really have gotten into backcountry ice fishing in the last five or six years, uh, just given the fact that I've had the opportunity to do some of it for work too. So it's given me more chances to go up there um, now that I work uh, mainly on issues related to uh, the Boundary Waters itself as the executive director of Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. But um, yeah, I mean, fishing is my first love. I am a hunter and a chef too, but uh, I grew up fishing and, and uh, that's pretty much, pretty much my, my fishing story. I mean, I got tons of fun, fun stuff with fishing, but uh, yeah. So um, was that the trip that sealed the deal for you? Like you're just out there in the, in the elements and it, you're like, I, you know, I want to do more of this or, or did you kind of keep getting forced to go along for a bit and it, and picked it up from there? I think it sealed the deal. Um, after that, I was able to continue going up with my dad and his friend and you know hit okay. the parties that they were taking my dad's friend uh steve wally we call him the finlander that's a whole nother story quite the <laughs> character um uh guided folks up there and and some folks would fly in from you know different states you know i remember guys from virginia california florida um so he had been doing that for quite some time and met my dad through painting but so i was able to to go on those trips with them until i was about 18 or 19. And after that, I branched off and started, you know, bringing my friends in and kind of um, mimicking, but also building my own ways of, of being out there and mm. um, started, started to, you know, guide some of my friends up and got a few of my buddies hooked. And, you know, when we were in our early to mid twenties, we started taking that annual spring trip for, for Lake Trout on our own too. So, uh, and, you know, now again, working on, on the issue itself, I have the privilege of being able to go up to the Boundary Waters, you know, it depends, uh, eight, 12, 16 times a year. Um, albeit sometimes, you know, short and sweet, but, uh, it's, it's always fun when you get to introduce people to something you love. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, the Boundary Waters and fishing is, is, you know, near and dear to my heart, but, you know, I'm, I'm that, that local boy that'll go sit out on a lake and a pop up too, and, and throw a, a sonar in and and pound some panfish or something <laughs> you know yeah so what's involved in uh backcountry ice fishing um well it can be as easy as you want it to be you know it could be going on a day trip uh where you're just basically so to take a step back um except for some of the border lakes of the boundary waters which is like a 1.1 million acre uh wilderness area within uh the superior national forest in northeast minnesota okay um it's it's non-motorized so during the winter for ice fishing there's a few a few lakes that you can get into with snowmobiles but there's a certain point where you're left to your own um you, you know your own feet basically mm -hmm. right so you're either skiing or snowshoeing you're pulling what's called a polk sled uh, which is basically like a, a sled with all of your gear hooked up to a harness that you drag and then you have portages in between each lakes that, I mean, no one grooms them unless there's some cross country skiers out on there. But uh, so they, they can get pretty rough, icy, and sometimes you need cleats. Or if you're 
one of the unfortunate ones that decided not to bring snowshoes or skis you're post holing through quite quite a mm -hmm. bit of snow sometimes and then um so that day trip can be as much as a you know an hour in and a couple lakes and then you have to hand drill all your holes with a hand auger um or it can be you know a week-long trip i've you know where you do four or five nights and you're in a, a wall tent with a wood stove or if you want to get really crazy you can build snow shelters and just have your, your own campfires in spots too um so it's uh it's definitely a different experience than just going on you know a like a regular backcountry fishing trip in you know the other three seasons of the year that we have here in you know spring summer and fall of course Mm -hmm. Um, and you definitely have to have your stuff together because, you know, one, one small wrong move and, you know, you twist a knee or break an ankle, it's, it's pretty tough to get out of there. So, um, there's, you know, a handful of things that, you know, you want to make sure you have, and that's, you know, you need to have shelter, you need to have warm clothing, you need to have a way to start a fire and you need to have a way to call out in case of an emergency. And in the case of the boundary waters, that's, that's a satellite phone. That's pretty much your only mm -hmm. option. Now, are you camping on the ice then, or are you camping on nearby land and, and just walking out to fish? You can do either way. Okay. I've done both. Um, in the, in, in all, in the actual like permitting season of the boundary waters, which goes from April 1st to October 1st, you're only allowed to stay at designated campsites that have a U.S. forest, uh, forest service, uh, cast iron grate that kind of shows where the actual campsites are in the boundary waters. But in the winter, you can camp out on the ice. You can camp anywhere um, on land that you like. Um, you know, it's same premise as anything else is make sure you clean up after yourself and, 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 or leave it better than it was before. So. Mm -hmm. So is the, I want to get into the boundary waters a little bit, cause I've, I've never been there, but mm -hmm. I'd, really like to go um but yeah. i at the same time i don't know a ton about it i i know what i've heard from other people which is just a lot of you know talking about how amazing the you know just the isolation you feel there and and you know the fishing's great too um right. but do you just want to kind of give an overview of of what the boundary waters is and then also maybe um talk about the actual wilderness area you know versus the the general area of of that you know region sure yeah, so um, kind of the the high level description is you know the Boundary Waters is is nearly 1.1 million acres of public land and water, meaning that's you know accessible um, to everyone. Uh, like I mentioned before, via permit during certain times of the year, but it also means uh, as public land, it is owned by everyone. So it is a part of that greater 646 million acres of public land and water that we are fortunate to have here in the United States. Um, it's a vast uh, boreal forest in northeastern Minnesota uh, that consists of interconnected lakes, streams, and wetlands and uh, provides some of the best fishing and hunting uh, the world has to offer. So you have a lot of folks that, that travel to the Boundary Waters, both locally, nationally, and from the world. Uh, for that one-of-a-kind chance to pursue, you know, we have uh, native cold water uh, fisheries for lake trout, walleye, smallmouth bass, northern pike, and then folks hunt white-tailed deer, rough grouse, black bear, and it's it's really that that true 
backcountry wilderness like landscape that experience and kind of what you mentioned before it's it's that it's that quiet experience that solace you know you're away from you're away from you know normal society it's a way to kind of take a step back and recharge your batteries but um you know the boundary waters is inside this pure national forest um and this pure national forest that that houses the BWCA in Northern Minnesota actually holds 20% of the fresh water in the entire national forest system. Um, so that's, you know, 20% of the fresh water and 3 million out of 193 million, million acres. So it's a wow. staggering number, right? Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned before, there's, there's border, border lakes or border route lakes too. Um, and some of those are accessible up to a certain horsepower for uh, motorized boats um, but the rest of the wilderness itself the rest of the boundary waters itself um, is not motorized so it's mainly traversed by canoe and over portages um, which are basically the the trails that were carved out um, over time and when this was first you know this area was first established in between lakes um, so you have to carry all your gear um, pack all your gear in and out uh, it's, it's pretty fun yeah, that's kind of the impression I've gotten from it. It's, you know, we've got plenty of wilderness areas out west and it's, you know, the right. same thing, no motorized vehicles and it's still, you still get that isolation and the solitude and just the quiet feeling that you don't quite get in other national forest areas. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's just a different, it, it's just different having it be, um, you know, majority water, or almost majority water, where out here yep. we don't have that. So, you know, yeah, you're out there and it's usually a little bit more peaceful than some of the other, you know, national forests or public land areas, but people are still kind of, you know, they're, they're based out of the same trail network. So, you know, yep. you might go off trail, but everyone's kind of originating at the same point. You're kind of following along the same trail, maybe branching off here and there, but it sounds like you're in the boundary waters. It's a lot more free for all in that you can just kind of go and you have, you know, all of the water is your trail. Is that, yeah. is that a fairly accurate representation of it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's there's certain regulations you have to follow. Like when you when you purchase a permit, uh, you have to you know enter on the specific day that you purchase a permit for at the at a specific entry point. Um, okay. Besides that, the the sky's the limit. You know, you can go whichever way you want. If uh, I would certainly recommend against bushwhacking through instead of following the trails, <laughs> but you could do that if you wanted to. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a vast you know water rich area so yeah you're spending a lot of time on the water and that's why you know fishing is so popular there too and you said you have to camp at um their kind of designated camping mm -hmm. locations yep. but you can you can go to other areas on land that aren't um designated as long as you're not camping there correct okay and are those i mean how frequent are those is there one on pretty much any island you stop on or is it you oh, have to sure. kind of keep a map yeah okay just other areas for you to stop at i mean you can you know, all you need is a foot. <laughs> you, know, you can stop wherever you want, to be honest. Um, but yeah, there's there's plenty of cool spots where you can you can you know park your canoe and lay back and either take a nap or have lunch or fish or swim. You know, at the right time of year, of course, it's super cold in the spring. Though I've tried swimming in that. You're kind of diving straight in, and as immediately as you hit the water, you're coming right back in. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, it's that that's what's so cool about it. You know, camping. Camp, a lot of the times, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of two different campers too, you know, some that like to really travel hard and go hard 
and put the miles in, which is great. I love doing that. And then there's the folks that, you know, want to relax and kind of soak it all in and, and, you know, maybe do a base camp and take day trips and come back. Okay. Um, just as long as you're, you're, you're staying at that campsite, um, you know, with, with one single permit, which is another regulation you have to, you can't split off into two campsites with, with only one permit. Oh, okay. But you, the permit is not specific to a, a specific campsite. No. You can, you can just go, as long as you have a permit, you can bounce yeah. between them. Yeah. And, you know, for safety purposes, you're, you're giving a, a, a general idea of destination. So if something happens or maybe you don't come out on a, a day you propose that you might be back out, at least folks have an idea of where to look for you. Because if you do get back fairly far, you know, A, you stop running into people. Um, because they're on shorter trips and aren't making the effort to go back as far and and B, I mean you have no way of contacting anybody like I said unless you have a satellite phone in mm-hmm. so um, a lot of the outfitters and um, um, lodges and places that that do that sort of uh, outfitting and guiding up there recommend bringing that sat phone uh, I as far as my understanding, I, I don't think you see it as much of that as you probably could. And do you, do you find that uh, there's kind of hot spot because is isn't the, this wilderness area the most visited wilderness area in the U.S.? It is, yes. Now, do you find that uh, there are kind of hot spots of people, you know, at, at specific launch points, but it's pretty easy to get away from the crowds, or um, like how many people a yeah. day are you kind of seeing out there if you if you're actually you know making a trip out of it and heading in is it does it thin out pretty quickly it does thin out pretty quickly i mean you know if, if it's like with with any space you know if you're going fishing open or memorial day labor day you're bound to just run into a ton mm-hmm. of people um the way that the u.s forest service has the permitting system set up um is there's only a certain amount of permits allowed per entry point per day so their goal there is to kind of keep that clutter from happening, though you are going to run into it every once in a while. Okay. And can you just tell me about the fishing there for a little bit? Just, yeah. you know, what, yeah, I mean, you know better than I do even what to ask, but just I've, I've heard such good things about about the fishing there, and I grew up fishing for some of those species that I'd love to hear, you know, what, what a fishing experience is like in the Boundary Waters. Well, I mean, you know, for I, I kind of walk through like the year, honestly. Um it's December now, so uh, lake trout up there opens at the end of the month. Uh, it's either December 31st or January 1. Um, I'd have to look back at the regs. It changes a couple days every year. But um, so it's it's kind of prime time ice fishing. It's been cold here as of late, I think, as it's been cold everywhere <laughs> as of late. So uh, the ice fishing season is definitely starting a bit earlier. Um, folks are out on the lakes right now, um, you know, just kind of getting their feet wet and fishing for walleye and crappie and, and those are probably the main two. And, and now, you know, when lake trout starts, that's, that's the big draw for the boundary waters and in the winter for fishing, at least Okay. pike is Northern pike as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the lake trout fishing up there is phenomenal. It's by far my favorite, uh, experience in the boundary waters so um you know i have a couple projects lined up where i specifically make sure that it it involves doing some type of ice fishing up there and and uh it's it's 
it's just so much fun. And like I described earlier, you know, you get out a couple lakes and you're out there for the day. You may see one cross country skier go by, but for the, for the most part, you're, you're sitting in silence and having fun and maybe a tip up pops up here and there and, you know, sitting and jigging. Um, it's, yeah, it's exciting too. So, especially when you, um, and you know, earlier in the season when the lake trout are, are still schooled up a little bit too, uh, you can have some fun very quickly, but, um, that season goes all the way through the end of March. So you have plenty of opportunity to get in an ice fish too. So, I mean, certainly hear anybody listening, I would encourage them to at some point, at least, you know, try fish ice fishing in the boundary waters. It, it's not as daunting as it sounds. And, you know, if you know a couple of folks that have done it before that can point you in the right direction, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to, to get done. And then go ahead. Oh, I no, I could keep going. <laughs> oh. And then, uh, then you kind of have, you know, from, from March into the beginning of May, which is when fishing opener is here. It's, that's kind of that, uh, more of a, a, a dead zone, except for some stream trout fishing. Uh, most of the boundary waters lakes do not hold stream trout, though there are some that'll have uh, brook brown and rainbow trout. Okay. So there's a lot of border lakes up there that you can hit too. So that, that's that's a lot of fun. Um, just kind of fill the time in between that and, and uh, fishing opener. Um, but uh, yeah, fishing openers is like I said, kind of what I grew up doing. And there have been years that I've gone in uh, on 80 degrees and there have been years that I've gone in at 30. It's just, it's a complete crapshoot. And not only is that a huge, this, a huge disparity in, in temperatures from trips, that can also happen like in back-to-back days, which is crazy. Okay. Because you have um, Lake Superior, uh, which we call Gishigumi, and if something starts blowing off of that and you have, you know, your normal Northwest storm fronts pushing in, you can, it can go from a nice mild early spring day to a cr- complete craziness overnight. So um, that, that also creates some fun barometric pressure changes for fishing too. So, um, so do you notice a different, like, do you notice uh are you looking for specific changes when you're going out there? Yeah, just hard spikes, hard okay. spikes, you know. So I like to see something, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a high high pressure, low pressure, just as long as you see a hard spike, um, generally some cloud cover, of course, because um, these fish are really shallow. And this is in the winter too, uh, lake trout specifically, uh, northern pike as well. So they're very shallow and you can practically fish them from shore and this is fly fishing or spin casting however you like to do it and yeah it's it's a ton of fun it's a totally different experience than um a couple months later when you get into um uh, the fact that the water starts warming lake trout really like cold clean um oxygenated water so they have to retreat very deep very quickly and so how deep is deep there um gosh i should know what the deepest point is but uh, for a normal lake, especially some that I fish, you're looking at somewhere between like eight and 120 feet. Okay. So not necessarily, not necessarily retreating all the way to the bottom, but pretty far. And um, enough to, to matter to, especially like fly fishermen who probably aren't, you know, going to get yeah. down that low. No, that's not happening. I mean, 
your 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 chances for for bagging a, a lake trout on the fly are are that first month for sure okay in may just because i mean even even with like sinking leaders uh, yeah you're just not going to get down you're not going to get that down. low yeah so then how about the rest of the year what what uh, happens after that um june is when well may as well as i mean it's super popular for walleye so may and june are really popular for walleye um that's when you see you know walleyes are state fish so people are you know just tickled to go up and target them <laughs> personally i really like walleye i've been i grew up fishing them i have a, a permanent fish house that we drag out onto a big lake in central minnesota and and ice fish and drink beer and whatever it's not really that professional but uh um i'm not saying that the the fish is necessarily overrated but they're definitely some better tasting fish in my opinion i think fresh lake trout from those lakes up there is great um pike even from a really cold crisp like winter uh water is awesome white fish kind of an overrated or underrated fish you know generally considered a trash fish no limit um a really great fish too but um back to your question june is when top water smallmouth happens okay boundary waters is amazing smallmouth territory both on the west and east side so you have kind of two gateway city town cities grand marais and ely um kind of a bit different landscape you know the west side is a little more rolling hills um and then the east side is kind of cliffy and elevation changes and has a lot of those deep bowl um glaciated lakes where you find the lake trout as mm-hmm. well but also some really cool smallmouth uh, lakes and not not nearly as many as the ely side but some really cool ones so Smallmouth is up there is, is pretty awesome, in my opinion. And that's also a great time for pike on a fly, too. Okay, so it's not that uh, all the shallow water fishing goes away. It's just that the, the lake trout re- retreat back down deep when it when it starts to warm up. You're still fishing yeah, exactly. surface for oh, other. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, this is like, I, I think, you know, lake trout, I feel like you've, you have to have had the experience to know how great that fishing can be up there. Okay. So, um as soon as you have that or you've talked to someone, I mean, that's for me, that's always been number one, but you know, I think the big, the big draw for folks fishing is definitely, um, walleye, smallmouth and, and pike just okay. because it's that time of the year. It's a little safer. The water's a little bit warmer. You may run into some bugs, but, um, generally you know, that's when folks have a bit more time to head up there too. So early May it can be tough, can be cold. So some folks just tend to avoid that, which I totally understand yeah two, two different styles of fishing <laughs> yeah. i mean there's, there's a time to get after it and there's a time to just hang out in the nice weather and exactly. cast the line so what's your what's your i know you said uh you know backcountry ice fishing is that your absolute preferred way to go or, or are you kind of a year-round whatever's whatever's in season what's your style yeah i mean if i can get the opportunity i'll, I'll definitely go out um you know i again i i grew up on a lake with my family, you know, small motorboats, bobber fishing, you know, so my, my dad's a big troller. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'll, I'll take any opportunity I can get. I mean, over the past few years, I've spent a lot more time, um, personal time going up to the boundary waters for stuff. Uh, but, uh, 
you know, if it's a local lake and I can get out there with some friends for a day, I, I totally enjoy that. And like I said before, we have, we have a permanent ice fishing shack. It's about 10 by 16 that we, that gets dragged out onto the ice every year. And, um, uh, Mille Lacs Lake in central Minnesota. So that's fun. That's more of like a, a moving target, small cabin on the ice that you drill holes into and <laughs> kind of fish in. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to nail down one thing that I would specifically prefer to do, but I mean, I guess the two things that I, I strive to pull off every year are that spring trip and getting up ice fishing at one point up there. Okay. So I was going to transition over to talking about sportsmen for the Boundary Waters, but I think mm. maybe it makes more sense to start with the threats facing the Boundary Waters because I yeah. assume that, that that's probably what led to the creation of, of some of these um, you know, organizations that are fighting for the boundary waters and, and their protection. So I do yep. think that's a logical place to go next. Yeah, that's fine. All right. Well, um, I'll let you, I'll let you take it away. Cause I know you'll know a lot more than I do uh, about like what, what threats they're facing right now. Sure. So, uh, sportsman for the boundary waters was kind of established as a hunting and angling voice for protecting the boundary waters from proposed sulfide or copper mining. Uh, in its watershed. It's a rainy river watershed. Um, so basically what, you know, we were formed to do was to protect the integrity of, the, of this area and its watersheds for huntable and fishable populations of fish and wildlife. And I'm reading our mission statement because it describes <laughs> it the best um, now and forever through advocacy and education, right? So we work with other groups like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, uh, National Wildlife Federation, um, at, you know, at the local level, I, I'm on the Minnesota BHA board as well, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And again, I, our, our main mission at this current point, and this has been you know, a longstanding battle since uh, our organization was founded in 2015, is, is to uh, prevent this proposed mine from uh, being built at the doorstep of the Boundary Waters. So it's uh, Twin Metals, Minnesota, which is wholly owned by Anafagasta. It's a Chilean mining conglomerate. Uh, Sulfide copper mining is a type of mining that's never been done, uh, especially in a water-rich environment like the Boundary Waters without polluting in some form, particularly um, the byproducts uh, from this type of mining uh, create what's called acid mine drainage. So it's kind of a toxic slurry of heavy metals that leach into the groundwater and you know surrounding wetlands. Uh, and like I said, this is a very interconnected space with those wetlands, aquifers, um, and the lakes and streams. You know, this it's a glaciated area, you know, carved over over millennia too. So again, that water-rich environment is is very susceptible to this type of pollution. So that's that's the big thing that's happening right now. Um, in its current state, it is, uh, a, it has gone through kind of some, some federal work at points. Um, there's been some environmental studies done, one not completed and canceled, uh, which was very unfortunate. And it, now it has gone to the state level and we are at this 
point expecting a mine plan of operation to be submitted by Twin Metals. In fact, we just did a uh, press conference today to kind of get ahead of that at the state capitol. Um, really what that uh, submittal of this mine plan does is kick off a um, state permitting process that will also kick off another environmental um, study, one being done by the feds and also one being done at the state level. The one at the state level is being done uh, because the federal, at the federal level, some information is being suppressed. So the state doesn't trust that the, uh, um, at the federal level that, you know, studying the impacts of this type of mine in this area can be done properly. So um, a lot of moving parts. Um, it's very unfortunate. Uh, in the end, you know, the robust economy that uh, this place, the Boundary Waters supports, the outdoor economy that supports um, in northeast, er, northeastern Minnesota um, is far more sustainable and can remain there in perpetuity comparatively to a boom and bust economy that uh, this type of mining will produce. And the benefits far outweigh the negatives of this type of mining up there too. Yeah, I feel like that's something that often gets overlooked. I mean, I feel like this is the same thing with Bristol Bay. Yeah, you have a threat that you know people people support it because it's an economic driver, and and they completely overlook the fact that it's not like this is happening out in the middle of you know I don't want to say in the middle of nowhere because that's kind of what the Boundary Waters is is getting to be out in the middle of nowhere, but right. it's it's in a place that's already a huge ep- economic driver for that area. I mean, like I said, that's the most visited wilderness area in the u.s you think that's not you know driving the economies of the you know local towns in that area um and right, i feel like people cool. overlook that yeah and you know it's it's also not a black and white issue and we totally understand that too and we're very sympathetic to that and you know understand that folks up there um are are looking to this to create jobs and in other otherwise in a space where you know this you know mining jobs actually do not exist anymore right um Minnesota is 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 and always has been primed as as a great producer of taconite and iron ore. So it, it's 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 a wonderful mining economy up in northeastern Minnesota, but it's just not driven by this type of mining, which has never been done here before. So uh, obviously that's an issue. Um, the fact of the matter is 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 like I mentioned before too that how robust that outdoor economy is up there is it it provides and supports more jobs and will create more jobs that will remain there for a very long time comparatively to anything that um, Twin Metals pitches that this mine will create. Um, So why there? Why specifically right on the edge of the Boundary Waters does the mining need to happen? Is that just the location that, you know, the resources exist? Or is it possible for the mining to happen but just not happen in this exact location? Well, the issue is, is the copper deposit, which is one of the largest uh, in the world, is located at its shallowest point where um, Twin Metals owns the leases, the two leases that um, they are proposing to build this mine at. So you have you have that that issue there as well, where they want to obviously begin extracting this copper. Um, you know, the, the mineral within the tailings as well is less than 1%. So, you know, you're looking at, I believe it's uh, 
they downgraded to what they're excavating to 20,000 tons a day, but it's a very small amount of, of mineral that they're pulling out per that. So it's a tough situation. Um, yes, we do need critical minerals like that. Um, though it's not on the, uh, U.S.'s critical mineral list. Uh, we also have a, uh, I believe it's around 150 year store of copper already given our current consumption. And you know, you'll hear the argument that you need it for your cell phones. We need it for the computer that you and I are talking, you know, on right now. You need it for electric cars. You need it for, uh, windmills, windmills for sustainable energy. You know, the list goes on, but, um, Something also that's overlooked too is copper is one of the most recyclable recyclable minerals uh, in the world as well. So folks are developing great ways to to do that sustainably. So we don't have to threaten wonderful places like the Boundary Waters anymore. And when when they're doing the mining, you talked about the acid mine drainage. Is that mm-hmm. something that uh, occurs in the instance of some sort of catastrophic failure on the part of the company, or is this something that leaches in? you know, assuming everything goes as planned, it still happens? Or is this a worst case scenario situation? It's it's when the sulfide bearing rock is um, introduced to water or air, it ends up producing sulfuric acid. And that is the main byproduct of that. So again, you have what is going to be both an underground and an above ground tailings facility. Um, and in a water rich environment and also one where it happens to rain a lot as well and also built over backfilled wetlands. So you're, you're getting hit from water at every angle here, uh, specifically in a space where the chemical reaction is extremely detrimental to the surrounding, um, area, including, you know, the chemical balance of the water itself via pH level and, you know, the metal levels of the water itself and also within the wildlife species and the fish. So it's just makes no sense. What do you do with the sportsman for the boundary water or what is sportsman for the boundary waters doing um, to fight this? And, and what is your particular role there? I work as the executive director. Um, we fight this from all angles uh, at a local level uh, that is boots on the ground, introducing folks to this, getting, you know, media and elected officials up to, to see exactly what's at stake, um, to work within, uh, the town to get, uh, speakers and advocates on, on behalf of the area. Um, we work at a state level, both, uh, within agencies and legislatively, uh, we work with our partners, both local and national. These are, you know, nonprofit partners, um, we also work at a federal level and, you know, we're out in DC meeting with agencies, meeting with, with, uh, elected officials, educating them and advocating on behalf of the boundary waters itself. So, uh, it's, it's a full-time constant battle to, uh, to work on this issue, but it's something that's very important to us. Do you find that you have uh, a lot of support from the locals there or is it kind of divided? It's pretty divided. Um, it's it's a divisive issue, you know. Um, you have the folks that want to make sure that you know this place isn't polluted, that you know um, everyday life can continue the way it is and as should. And then you have the folks that are really advocating for 
the creation of the mine to create jobs within the local economy. Um, and, you know, there's, of course, a lot of belief on one side that it can be done safely and fairly. And then, of course, there's us who believe that uh, based on sound science and facts and peer-reviewed papers and studies that uh, it's, it just simply cannot. Is there something that, um, that you want to share that people can do to support your work and, and, you know, help protect the Boundary Waters, regardless of whether they live in that area, if maybe they just want to see it in their future or just know that it exists? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, check out, you know, our website and educate yourself more at sportsmanbwca.org. Um, we have plenty of information there. Also, you know, uh, ways for you to take action um, to participate. But, you know, secondly, and, and most importantly, is make a call to your, your local elected official, you know, whether that be your state senator, uh, house rep, um, uh, local rep, county commissioner, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, educating folks on the issue and putting it on their plate is, is going to go a long way and help to nationalize the issue itself. Um, so I, I'd say that's the biggest one. Um, and, and make sure you educate yourself, you know, fill out a petition, get involved, um, hold an event. Uh, the, the more you raise your voice, the more you advocate for an issue, um, the more people can hear you. Yeah, I know it's hard to replace an actual call to your representatives, but if, yep. you know, if for some reason you're, you know, strapped for time or whatever, I, I feel like uh, BHA has done some pretty, uh, or ma made some easy ways to contact your representatives where all you have Absolutely. to do is go on and, and fill out your name and, and your yep. location and they will send it on your behalf, yep. which, you know, I know a lot of people say it's not as good as actually picking up the phone, but it's, you know, it's helpful. sure a lot better yeah. than uh, doing nothing at all. So, yep. And we absolutely do that too. So, you, you know, you can hop right on our website and you'll see contact your representative or sign the petition. Um, plenty of ways, you know, and of, and of course, you know, I think one of the most important is see the place for yourself. Um, uh, there's, there's nothing more important and more impactful than um, seeing what's threatened and what may disappear, you know, and, and also as a nonprofit, if it's something you're passionate about, please donate, you know, all your or money goes to our efforts and, and nothing else. So. I guess that's a good, um, I, I wasn't going to get into this. It's, I don't want to make this a, you know, plan your own trip kind of show, but sure. uh, if, if someone wants to come visit the boundary waters, do you have a, a quick and easy, you know, where should, where should someone plan to fly into? Um, you know, where's the best gateway to get to the boundary waters? Is it easy to get a permit? You know, a, a couple high level things that people can do to, yeah. to plan their own trip there. Yeah. I mean, first feel free to reach out to me or, or anybody on our team. I mean, you can contact us uh, via our website and I'd be happy to help you out, though we're not <laughs> generally an outfitter. We want to make <laughs> people can see this spot. Um, and frankly, the easiest way to do it too is, is just hop online, check out, you know, uh, look up like Boundary Waters Outfitters and give a couple people a call, you know, say, hey, how's the fishing? You know, what's the best time to do this? You know, people want you to come up there and they're going to help you out and and give you um, whatever you need to make your trip happen. So uh, it's, it's, it's really that easy. And most of those outfitters can help you with the permitting, too. They do it right there. They also do fishing licenses. Uh, oh, okay. Yep. They, they rent all the gear. Um, can you rent a canoe? Can you yep. oh, yeah. do that? Okay. Rent, you can rent literally everything except for 
the clothes and basic necessities that you have to bring for yourself. So packs, you know, some folks do fishing gear. They provide guides, tents, sleeping bags, uh, canoes, all that stuff. Are these outfitters located like right at the edge of the boundary waters or would you need a vehicle that could haul a, haul a canoe to the edge of the boundary waters for you? Well, it could go both ways. If you want to do it yourself, yes. Otherwise, most of the outfitters uh, will take everything down there for you and oh, drive okay. you down and pick you up if you'd like. That's part of the package. Um, okay. And, you know, you can you can do this as as in-depth as you want, and they can provide food, or you can do it as minimal as you want, you know. And um, a lot of cases, folks will have their own gear, and, you know, they don't own a canoe, so they'll just rent a canoe for, you know, somewhere around, I think, 30, 40 bucks a day and uh head up and do that so it's it's uh the the cool thing is you have a lot of options yeah it sounds pretty affordable if you get a get a couple people in a canoe and and have your own gear so it's like basically the cost of a flight and just the the permit and renting the canoe yeah put your food together and if you have your yeah if you have your own gear uh that's that's the cheapest way to go for sure um, well, the one last thing I, w- I did want to ask on a, on a more positive note is if you have uh, just like one or two really good stories from the Boundary Waters that either funny or whatever you want. Hmm. Man, let me think here. I guess maybe I'll, I'll, I'll tell a couple. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe these will go into the kind of what not to do stories. Perfect. Those are always the best. Yeah. Yeah. I like those. Um, so on one of the first ice fishing trips that I did, um, oh gosh, I don't even know how long ago this was. doesn't really matter. I went with a buddy of mine who lives in Grand Marais, uh, which is on the southeastern portion, uh, in northeastern Minnesota before kind of like that gateway city I was talking about before you go up into the boundary waters. And we were going to do a couple night ice fishing trip. Um, our bright idea was, well, we're just going to go in and build a snow shelter. It's not going to be that cold. Why not? Let's, let's get at it. Let's go in there. He brought a pop-up just so we could fish at night if we wanted and kind of stay warm. Um, everything was great. You know, I, I think we kind of half-assed built it when we should have taken a little more time. Snow is a little dry. So I, in the end, we didn't, didn't quite make enough room for ourselves, but I'll get to that. Uh, fishing was okay. You know, we built a nice little bonfire out on the ice that we cleaned up, which, um, for everybody listening, make sure that you clean all that stuff up and bring it back into the woods. If you do have a fire on the lake, because, um, you do not want that soot and burnt wood, um, sinking into the lake as it can leave some trace chemical residues that are not good for fish. Um, so classic leave no trace kind of idea. But so my buddy and I build this snow shelter. Boy, did we think we were smart. Um, it was a beautiful day and the temperature dropped like 30 degrees overnight. And I remember being in there just like shivering, laying in the snow and both of our feet are like sticking out of this thing. So we decided to get up and just fish. It's like three o'clock in the morning, you know, like, well, we're not sleeping. So we might as well just fish. (laughs) We go into the, we go into the ice house, you know, it's well, not the pop-up itself had a couple holes drilled 
he had his sonar. We were switching back and forth. This was before I bought one. Also, game changer, especially out in the Boundary Waters. If you feel like hauling it out, it's having that sonar. Um, fishing is just going crap. We're sitting there cold. We know we're not going back into this half hat, you know, half-assed ice shelter that we built. It's supposed to be like igloo-style, Quincy. Not big enough for us, but it is what it is. And I'm jigging. He's taking a break. I have the sonar. And all of a sudden, I see this, like, big red blip kind of pop up off of off of the bottom. And I'm like, okay, let's see their fish or we're just delirious and my mind is playing a trick on me. So I kind of, I brought the, I was kind of pounding the bottom a little bit, you know, just because we're in like 15, 16 feet of water and trying to just drum up some action. And I just slowly lifted my lure up and it just gets hammered. And again, we're both kind of delirious. So I'm trying not to make sure I, I shear my line off in the, in the hole because this thing is just running like crazy and almost spooling me. So I have to keep reeling in enough line so the thing doesn't spool me. After about 15 minutes, we get a couple glimpses, definitely a big lake trout. So he's screaming at me, you know, trying to tell me what I'm supposed to be doing so I don't lose it, which is kind of like the classic when you're sitting in something with someone, uh, you know, the person that's yelling at you <laughs> knows better and they want right. you to do a certain thing. Backseat driving. <laughs> yep. And so, I mean, we're both playing off each other. It's fine. Um, another 10 minutes goes by a few more runs. Finally, we get this thing in and weigh it out almost 15 pounds, probably the biggest lake trout I've ever, it is the biggest lake trout I've ever caught ice fishing uh, on this lake by far. And we both had that kind of, you know, uh, moment where we sat down and just couldn't believe that it happened. Took some a couple really shitty photos, which I'm super bummed about. Uh, never really got a great picture of it besides me just with like this shitty grin on my face and him <laughs> trying to take a picture within this little small space. And then we both ended up kind of trying to take a nap sitting down in that ice shelter and didn't sleep for like two days and just kind of kept doing the same thing. So... <laughs> Uh, long story short, and what I would recommend everybody is don't ever do that. Um, it will not work if you bring in a regular tent. Um, it will, ice shelters will work if you do them right, but take the time to haul in a canvas tent with a wood stove because you will be very happy that you did that. But it sounds like if you if you build a shelter too small and get and basically kick yourselves out that you might catch the biggest lake trout you have. <laughs> so hey, yeah, silver lining, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, weird time of night too. But yeah, so um, that's probably my craziest ice fishing story. I mean, at least in the Boundary Waters, most of the time it's just cold and and fun, but. Um, Maybe one more back to the Finlander. I just want, I, I have to tell a story about him. Sure, go for it. <laughs> so, I mean, he was a character for sure. Uh, like I said, he's a guy that, that you know, led all the, the trips that, you know, my dad grew up going with him. And again, like, you know, I, my first 10, 12 trips were with him as well. But just, uh, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 230, big, you know, bearded, finished dude that 
uh, definitely thought every way he did things was correct, but yet he was just kind of a messy person, but <laughs> uh, phenomenal fisherman. Um, but halfway through the first day, his hands would always be so black with soot that every piece of food that he cooked for you ended up having black soot on it. So you just kind of got <laughs> used to it. And then he'd make these gigantic batches of like fish chowder and we'd eat it. And then he'd set it aside and say, oh, it's cold enough out. You're going to eat that again tomorrow. So then you end up having to eat this cold fish chowder that's been sitting out uh, generally for like breakfast or lunch the next day too. But I, the stories are just endless. I mean, I could hear him across the lake sometimes like preaching to my friends or like screaming something crazy <laughs> from scripture or something. And, you know, this is, you know, 45, 50, like I said, I mean, he's, he's a presence. Let's just put it that way. And so, you know, we call him the Finlander. His name was Steve Wally, but he also had a um, alter ego at camp named Frank Mackey. I don't, I still to this day don't understand why, but, and he made t-shirts with with that name on it it's so that that was a like a self-described name that wasn't something you guys yeah. gave to him no no <laughs> no no so in camp we just called him frank i still don't know why but that's just the way it was and uh yeah he was just a crazy character he he, he always carried this this 80 pound three-person grumman you know aluminum grumman no matter you know canoe no matter how many people were going to be with him never use his hands the thing bounced with this yoke on him because they had this like canvas yoke big canvas duluth pack you know constantly smoking cigarettes and it is again just a sight to see but the man could fish and definitely taught us one of the main ways that i still fish for lake trout in the spring up there which is these um water filled um torpedo slip bobbers it's a crazy setup that people kind of shake their heads at me when i try and describe it but it works beautifully and so you don't really have a stop for this this is more or less kind of drift bottom fishing but okay. what we use is um uh salted shiner minnows so throughout the year you know i'll buy up shiners and salt them and freeze them so it's like um, you're not using any like chemical preservatives you're just using pickling salt but so at, at the end it, it's just that water filled slip bobber half filled with water so it lays flat in the water and then at the bottom you have you know whatever kind of attractors you want with tor like torpedo slip sinkers that push all that down to the hook where that salted shiner is you cast out into say like a channel from shore as that's like kind of floating down the channel the line is sinking. So I'm like trying to do this visual, you know, where you're almost like trolling down like 30, 40 feet until it hits the bottom and then it drags a little bit, but these fish are so voracious and so hungry in the spring when they're fattening back up after the end of, of the winter that they're just picking everything up. And it's the first eating that they can, that they can eat. And they have that, it has that attracted smell on it too. So the fishing is just great. Um, it's a crazy way to do it, but you know, the, ma the majority of folks that go up there 
uh, tend to sit in canoes at, even at that time of the year and, and troll, uh, which, which works great. Um, but this is just a fun way to do it where, um, you know, if after you catch a couple fish that if you're going to have a meal that night and if you want to sit and, you know, fish recreationally and have some fun, you just clip the barbs on your hooks and, and uh, you can really into a lot of fish. So thanks, uh, Finlander slash Frank Mackey slash normal name, Steve Wally. I <laughs> haven't seen in a while, but hey, that was his way and, and it's still ours, our way to this day. I feel like everyone's got one of those one of those friends who's just a little bit out there, but that's you know what makes them great. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, it's, it was I wouldn't have had my uh, first experience any other way than uh, kind of learning the ropes from him and developing my own styles of, of guiding up there afterwards. Mm -hmm. Is he still around, or you know, no, we haven't seen him in a while. Um, again, eccentric person uh, had some ideas of, of traveling and. Uh, we haven't heard from him since. So, so Frank, if you uh, hear this podcast, uh, give Dad or I a call. <laughs> I'm sure he's out there brightening <laughs> someone's day. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Awesome. Well, uh, Lucas, do you just want to share um, once again where people can find you or Sportsman for the Boundary Waters if they want to contribute or help out? Yes, absolutely. Um, you can certainly find my contact information on the website as, as well as our other folks. Uh, Lucas, L-U-K-A-S, at sportsmanbwca.org if you want to, uh, if you need any help trying to get up to the Boundary Waters or have any questions. Otherwise, uh, check us out at sportsmanbwca.org um, for any information you'd like and to learn more about uh, some of the issues that we're tackling uh, that uh, pertain to the Boundary Waters and here in Minnesota. Awesome. Well, hopefully I'll be hitting you up someday to uh, get your advice on where to go and, and how to do it. You and, definitely should. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me today. I, I really appreciate it and, and hope that uh, people have either been inspired to go to the Boundary Waters or maybe conjured up some, some of their good memories from there. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. All right, and that'll do it. As always, if you liked what you heard, go ahead and go over to the Wild Initiative podcast. You can subscribe there and get my shows bi-weekly on Thursdays as well as all of Sam's other shows throughout the week. You can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com in addition to backcountry fly fishing articles. You can find me on social media under my name Katie Burgert on Go Wild or at fishuntamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. All right, bye everybody. Wild Country. Rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country. Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.